preparing Hilchot Shabbat in Sefer Zemanim of Mishnah Torah of Rambam. Perkshin is the second chapter, and the second chapter deals with some of the limits of the, the fulfillment of Shabbat. So although we believe Shabbat is one of the highest misvot that there is, there is some things that are higher than Shabbat, and the second chapter deals with the exceptions to the fulfillment of Shabbat, namely not fulfilling Shabbat or violating Shabbat in order to save a human life. Halakha Aleph. So first of all, as a rule, and this is a rule we studied in Chotis Torah, Shabbat is postponed, it's set aside, it does not take precedence over Sakanat Nefashot, life endangerment, just like any other mitzvah. Therefore, any person who has an illness, which Ill- illness presents a danger to his or her life, all of his or her needs are done to him on Shabbat according to any professional doctor, medical professional that serves that community. If it's not clear if the action that is presumably necessary, is actually necessary, or not, the melacha. Or for example, you have a, a, a disagreement between two medical professionals. One says, yeah, you have to do it. One says, you do not. We still violate, desecrate the Shabbat for his sake. Because even any doubt of potentially life endangerment is enough to uh, violate Shabbat. If on Shabbat the doctor says, okay, so for eight days, for example, he'll have to be next to a freshly lit fireplace <clears throat> for eight days. So we shouldn't say, okay, so let's wait until Mosai Shabbat and start counting the eight days so that it only encompasses one Shabbat. Rather, you begin today, even if it's Shabbat, Shabbat, and you violate for this person even 100 Shabbatot, so long as he needs it, and he has, his life is in danger, <coughs> or potentially in danger, then you do this Shabbat. You can light a candle for this person, a light. You can also turn off the, the fire, the light from him. You can make shechaita and prepare food for him. You can cook, bake. You can warm water for him. Whether it's for his drinking needs or for his washing needs. This is the rule. Shabbat with respect to someone whose life is in danger for some medical reason. It's just like any day of the week for anything that he needs. For anything that he needs. When these things, with this, this preparation, these Shabbat violating preparations are made for the sake of someone whose life is in danger, we don't do them through people who um, you might think have a lesser obligation, like Goim who are not even obligated, or women who for some reason might be more willing to, to, to engage in these actions, or minors, or slaves. Actually, we wouldn't want for minors to do this because they are going to get the wrong message. They're going to get the wrong message. And this is not something forbidden, as we said before. It's like hol for anything that the person needs. Rather, <clears throat> we do this through the greatest people in the community, 
um, and the, 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 the most wise among them. And it's not something that we should instruct women who at that time were not as educated to do. They are, for the same reason, you don't want to give the wrong message that Shabbat has uh, too many exceptions. It's forbidden to hesitate to take a long time in violating Shabbat for someone who is sick and is in danger. Because the Torah itself is the one that says that the misvot were given so that man can, can do them and live by them. Live by them. It's not intended for the Torah, for the misvot, to be a cause of death for anyone. And so you learn from this pasuk that the, the rules of the Torah were not intended to be to, to bring severity to the world, to be to be to bring strictness. Rather, they were given to us as a benefit, as something that is supposed to be beneficial to us. Not only in the spiritual world, it's not that we we are made to suffer in this world so that we somehow through our suffering we earn the points for the world to come. That's a totally alien notion to, to everything that Torah is about. But rather, in this world, this life is a better life with the fulfillment of Torah. And that is the main point of it. And these heretics, and he's referring here, Harambam, to, to the Karaim, to the Karaites in his time, that say that this is forbidden to desecrate Shabbat for the sake of someone who is sick. There is a very interesting Pesukim in Yehezkel that the Navi says to Am Israel on behalf of God that they were given rules and laws that are not good and ordinances that they'll not live by. And Hachamim explain that sometimes for some people the very mitzvot can have the wrong effect. If you do the mitzvot with the wrong mindset, then the same mitzvot that are supposed to be amazing and improve your life in so many ways, they can actually be a detriment. They can hold you back. <clears throat> Anyone whose eyes are hurting and provided that he has some ooze coming from them or from at least one of them, or that from the pain, his uh, the, the, the tears are, are flowing, or blood is coming from them, or that he has some sort of a symptom of infection. Uh, this is something that is, uh, and maybe Aram is saying this as a doctor for his time, this is something that um, actually implies that there is a life-endangering condition underneath, in other words, in the rest of the skull, in the brain, or an infection that can spread to the blood. And this is enough to do Shabbat for this person. And we should do everything that's medically necessary. So too, anyone who has any internal hemorrhaging inside his body, uh, from his uh, skin and inside, so he's bleeding in the inside. Whether this is in his uh, in his mouth or his intestines, kaved uh, is is um, the liver. Tehol uh, is next to the liver. I forget the term right now. Or anything that he has inside his his abdominal cavity. This is also a life-endangering condition. And our mom says, I'm telling you right now, you don't need to go and check with the doctor. This is actually a serious condition. Therefore, we do Hilul Shabbat right away without having to consult professionally any doctor. Also, any kind of wound that happens on the back of the leg or the back of the back of the arm next to the armpit, so 
although it, it looks like a flesh wound, there is very important arteries there, the femoral artery, for example, on the leg, and bleeding from there is, is actually life-endangering. People can die from that. And this is enough for doing Hilu Shabbat. And also fever, that's as if it were an internal um, malady. Fever also left untreated is, is life endangering, and for this you can do Hilu Shabbat. So to anything else that's not internal, but that the doctors say that this can entail some life endangerment. Even if it's outside on the skin, it's enough for us going ahead and doing Hilu Shabbat. If a person swallows some kind of a water worm, so what they used to do is they used to drink quickly hot water to kill that, that worm uh, before it grows. There is cases in, in modern in modern day uh, life that of, of people who swallow these earthworm uh, these uh, water worms and they end up taking over their entire intestine. They are like parasites. And anything that's necessary medically, one does for this person. Because it also it entails a risk of life. Also, anyone who was bitten by a, a rabid dog or any reptile that's poisonous. Even if we don't know if they're poisonous or not. We do everything that's necessary to save this person's life. A sick person who was his medicine, his his uh, his treatment was prescribed as to eat one fig. Then ten people heard this, and ten people independently each went their own way, and they each brought a fig on Shabbat. Obviously, doing a melacha of uprooting a fig from a tree. All of them. Are exempt from anything. Now, this is an important halacha. Just if it, uh, if if only to illustrate the distinction between patur miklum and mutar, as we said in the first chapter, that mutar is when something is permissible a priori at the outset. Patur miklum, it's not asur midarabanan, but it's also not permissible. So you'll see in this example why that is. Why is that? Because if they knew from the beginning that nine other people were going to go. Then it's not mutar. It's only mutar when, as happened in this case, they only found out that they weren't the only one going getting this fig after the fact. They didn't do anything wrong, but if they knew at the outset, it's no longer permitted. permitted. Even if they brought each the fig after the other, so the first one is the one that's going to be used to cure the person, all other nine are kind of mut. Even if the first one actually cured him and he's no longer a hole. Because all of them did it and uh, with the the right permission, the, the reshut, they were allowed under these laws to go and bring them. So let's say a, a the sick person is prescribed to eat two gerogarot, two figs, and they... Uh, they have a. They go to the tree and they find there is two options: either to take two figs from two separate stems, or one stem that has three figs in them. So, what's preferable? What should we take? So we prefer for the for there to be cut the the one that has three in it in the same stem because we're only cutting one branch it's only one melacha it's a smaller melacha although the product that we are obtaining is larger than we need even though we only need two we prefer not to have extra melacha involved and so to any other example of this sort Let's say you cook for a person who is sick on Shabbat and there was leftovers. So this was cooked permissibly. 
there was nothing wrong with cooking something on Shabbat for someone who needed it for saving for life-saving treatment. However, hachamim forbade it. After the fact, after you've cooked it permissively, any leftovers, hachamim went ahead and said, we hereby decree that these leftovers are forbidden for anyone who is not the patient. Why? They were concerned that if the person, if a person knew that he could eat the leftovers that he's cooking permissively on Shabbat, he'll be tempted consciously or unconsciously to cook extra so that he has leftovers for himself. Following the same logic, what if you did shahita of an entire cow for the patient and all he ate was a little piece of the meat? Can you eat the rest of the meat on Shabbat? Yes. Any healthy person can eat uh, like tartar style, uh, raw style, they can eat the, uh, anything from that meat. By the way, when you eat it raw, you don't necessarily need meliha, which is also a problem on Shabbat. Uh, the, the, the person, the, 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 it's impossible to, to do more shahita or less shahita. The action is done. So that decree did not attach to things which don't have a variable quantity. There's no variable quantity here. I'm doing shahita one time and that's it. Even if I know that I'm possibly going to eat from whatever is left over, there's nothing I can, I can do that's more wrong than if I thought that they couldn't have anything before then. Um, I, I apologize. I said that you can eat without meliha. That's not the case. You actually need meliha for eating uh, raw meat. And uh, meliha is not something that is forbidden on Shabbat. We're going to see in, in Peret Yud Aleph Halachahe. These are from the wonderful pirush of Rabbi Yochai Makbili, which I have here on the side. <clears throat> now we switch gears to something that Be'ezrat Hashem should always be more relevant to us than the first nine halachot, and that is someone who has an illness but his life or her life is not endangered. Any person who is sick in his life is not in danger. You still can do anything that he needs, but we don't do it ourselves, we do it through and non-Jew. Kesad, how so? Omrim lagoy la'asot lo, we instruct someone who is not Jewish to do these things, and he shall do this. And we'll see in chapter 6 that otherwise we may not tell to a goy to do anything that we cannot do. Levashelo, to cook for him, ve'le'efot, to bake, ulavir refuamit shut l'rshut, to bring medicine from, from one domain to the other through the street, uh, on which you cannot carry us, we'll see in chapters uh, 14, 15, and so on. So too, uh, he can he can apply medicine on, on the eyes on, on Shabbat, which is something the Rabbanan. Even if there is no, there is no danger whatsoever. And if his needs do not have any melacha involved, if they don't have any melacha involved, then even a Jew can do. And from here, this is yet another place in which my, my pr pr proposal in the first chapter makes even more sense. I propose that whenever Harambam uses the word melacha, is in particular the oraita, something the Rabbanan, something Shavut is not a melacha, as it will be clear in this chapter of Shavut, Harambam says there is something that are forbidden, even though they are not melacha. And so to going back to the first chapter, just as a reminder and refresher, we said Pesik Reshehe, Pesik Reshehe, we said that when you have a knowledge that you're causing a melacha through your permitted action, you are hayav. So I said for Harambam, it seems this is only when we are dealing with an actual melacha, not with something that is not a melacha, even if that something is forbidden with the Rabbanan. Lefichach, ma'alin oznaim ba'shabbat, u ma'alin unkeli, 
Therefore, on Shabbat, you can do a, a few things, which is uh, bringing back to its place the jaw. If the jaw was dislocated, you bring it back. Um, the, the same, the same, um, the, they used to do something. I think, I think it was sort of like that, uh, the, the maneuver that people do to, to, to help someone who is, um, who is choking. They used to do this, a different kind of maneuver, for people who had some kind of stomach pain. That's forbidden with Rabbanan, but it's permissible for we can also uh, relocate a broken bone to its place. And everything of this of this kind that's not forbidden midoraita is permissible for a holeshe and bosakana. Halacha Yud Aleph is going to deal with Yoledet, with a woman who is about to give birth. So it's a specific case. It's not just like any other person whose life is endangered, because we consider the life of a woman to be endangered during the actual act of birthing but leading to that we know that's about to happen but her life is not yet in danger so hamim dealt with yoledet separately and that's what we are studying in, in these coming lines a woman who's giving birth the moment that she's birthing she has her life is in danger and we as, as soon as she as she she starts positioning herself as if to birth. The birthing process begins, and this can take many, many hours, as many women know. Uh, at that, from that moment on, you can do Hilul Shabbat for her. You can call for her a midwife from a different place. Presumably, she can come in ways that are not permitted on Shabbat. <clears throat> you can cut the baby's umbilical cord and tight. Even if she needs light, the moment that she's struggling with her labor pains, you can light a, a, a light, a, a candle for her, a lamp really. Even if she was blind and she's not going to to enjoy really of this of this uh, of this light because of the psychological effect that it has on her to just know that there is a candle lit. So that psychological benefit is enough to justify lighting a fire on Shabbat for a Yoledet. Even if she doesn't see it, if she needs oil or some kind of lotion or ointment of, of, of any kind, you can bring that from anywhere. However, because it's Yoledet, as I said, her life is not immediately in danger. It's going to be in danger in the actual birthing. So whatever that can be done in a slightly different way than the ways the way these things normally are done, we should do it differently. For example, if her friend is bringing oil for her, she can tie she can tie the 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 pot of oil on her hair that's not the way that normally you carry things but if that's not possible she should bring it her normal way this is a halacha that might be uncomfortable for some people nowadays, but it is what it is. That's what Chachamim decided. That's what Rambam is recording. If we don't like it, the best we can do is gather together a Sanhedrin and lobby for a majority to change these laws, but this is what it is. Um, we should not aid or give birth to a non-Jew on Shabbat. These exceptions are only done for members of the Jewish community. So again, the general rule is we don't do any of these things. There is an exception carved out when a Jewish, in other words, a member of those who are within the same umbrella called Jewish law, for them, there is an exception, a very narrow exception of what we are allowed to do. This exception does not extend to someone who is not within this membership. Even if this is, if this is paid, uh, 
Hachamim wanted us to only assist birthing non-Jews only if we are paid for it. Uh, and in this case, we should not change the halacha because of uh, potential social uh, discomfort or social negative so social consequences with the goyim. Even if it, uh, there is no uh, actual desecration of the Shabbat involved in the birthing process. However, a, a, a woman, a female from Gertoshav, Gertoshav is a non-Jew who lives in Eretz Israel under our jurisdiction and has accepted our sovereignty and has accepted the seven mitzvot ben Noah. So we have a mitzvah to protect them and to, and to protect their life. They are our protégés. And therefore, this includes also helping them give birth if they have to, even on Shabbat. However, even with Kertoshav, we help them give birth, but not through Hilul Shabbat. <clears throat> so Yoledet was the pre-birthing stage. Alachayot Gimal and Yodaled deal with someone who just gave birth, that's Haya. A, a, a woman who just gave birth or is in the process of actually giving birth. From the moment that she starts bleeding, in other words, the, 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 the uterus opened completely until she actually delivers. And after delivering for three additional days, we do Hilul Shabbat for her and we do anything she needs. Whether she says I need it or doesn't need it, these three days are critical, especially back in the day when um, the, 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 the survival rate for women giving birth was not very high at all. From three to seven days, in other words, um, days four, five, six, and seven. Im amira any serikha. If she says, "I don't need, I don't need these. You don't need honey. You don't need to turn the fire for me. I'm okay." Um, then uh, we don't do chilul shabbat for her. Veim shateka. If she doesn't do anything, if she doesn't say anything, but we just think maybe maybe she needs a fire. Ven sarich lomar. And obviously, how much more so? Im amira serikha. And if she actually instructs us, please light the fire. We do Shabbat for her, <clears throat> and the rest of the month, the 23 days remaining for the 30 days of the month, then she gets the status of someone who has some sort of an illness, but not that her life is not in danger. And even if she says, I need it, the only case in which we'd actually do a melacha for her, again, melacha is the oraita, is through someone who is not Jewish. Halacha yudalet. Osin medura lehayav, afilu bimot ahamma, mipenesha sinna kasha lehayar ben mikumot akor. The example I gave before, we light a fire for someone who just gave birth, even if it's in the summer, because they're, they're, uh, they are more sensitive to cold. But this is not the case for any other sick person. Uh, to, to, that's not one of the medical needs. If, if someone who someone is sick, something unrelated to, to temperature, then it's not deemed one of his medical needs to have a comfortable temperature in the room. Someone gave blood, and after giving blood, which, by the way, makes you lose also some uh, white blood blood cells, and your defense mechanism is a little weakened. And then you get, you catch a flu or cold. Then this becomes already a life endangering condition that has to do with the temperature. And then we do light a fire for this person, even if it's during the summer. Also, for the baby, we wash the baby with hot water. On Shabbat, the day that he was born, after his umbilical cord was cut, obviously to prevent infection, this was the, the antibacterial method of the day, hot water. Even if you have to warm the water on Shabbat, 
umlapefinotum, you also put all kinds of, of salts on the baby. They used to do that. Umlapefinotum is uh, you wrap him and put ointments. His life is in danger if, if you don't take care of him this way. So do you wash uh, the, a, a baby boy right before the mila again to, to clear the area from all bacteria and, and other organisms with really hot water, you know, also after the mila to prevent infection. And also on the third day of the mila, Bahamin Shuhamu Bashabat, even with water that needs to be heated on Shabbat, Pinasakana, all of these things are life endangering. A woman who, God forbid, she delivered and then she died, or she was in the middle of delivery and then she died with the labor pains. Um you should bring a surgical knife on Shabbat, even through the, the public domain, which is a melacha. You operate on her, and you try to save the baby. Perhaps the baby is still alive. You don't know right now if the baby is alive or not. Uh, I, I, I don't, I'm not a doctor, but I assume that in most cases the baby would not survive. Um, depending on what stage the baby was, especially in those days. But you do have a safek nefashot here, because perhaps the baby is alive, and if he's alive, we want to try to save him. Vafilu so safek nefashot, the potential risk to life applies even for someone who was never alive before. So this baby wasn't really alive um, and he doesn't have hazaka of being alive, and yet a safek of this baby perhaps being alive is enough for doing Hilul Shabbat. Halachat <clears throat> Zain, now we switch gears from medical conditions to actual, to other life-saving measures that we may do on Shabbat. We save lives on Shabbat and we don't need any professional rabbinic opinion to do so. And anyone who goes and takes precedence and goes and does it first and, and rushes to, to, to do so, that's praiseworthy. For example, how so? You see a child falling to the ocean. Right away, you should prepare a, a, a fisherman net and throw it to the, the ocean and, and bring that kid up. Even if I know that with that child that I'm saving, I'm also getting a lot of fish. Fishing obviously is forbidden. What if the fisherman didn't see the boy falling, but he heard a boy fell on the other side of the boat? He runs, throws the net, and unfortunately, does not bring any boy up. He didn't see it, but he only brings fish up. Um, he's patur miklum. He's uh, he's not uh, he's exempt from anything. Uh, and again, a difference here between mutar and patur miklum. You cannot say mutar to go and purposely uh, throw a fisherman a a, a fish net to the ocean to only get fish and not the boy whose life we are trying to save. Even if he did not hear that there was a boy, that there was a boy whose life was in danger, if a fisherman just wants to fish, he actually intends to do something wrong on Shabbat, but he happens to, in that process, be saving someone's life, that is enough for the person to be patur, uh, either from korban or from capital punishment. <clears throat> if a child falls inside a well, you're allowed to get one of the rocks of the stones that make the border of that well and uh, 
put it on the side in order for you to be able to reach inside the well, even if by doing so you're creating, you're constructing a staircase to the well. In Aladelet Bifnetinok, a child gets locked behind the door. Shovet Adelet Mosio, you can break that door to save him, to rescue him. Even that, that breaking of the door is a kind of breaking that creates many usable pieces of wood, which obviously is forbidden. Because we don't want the child to go into panic and having a panic attack uh, is potentially life-endangering. Let's say there is a fire. And there is a person that maybe is going to be affected by that fire. You are allowed to put the fire off in order to save that person. Even that with the fire, you are um, you are creating a pathway because by 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 putting the fire away, you are exposing an area that's now. Uh, more or less, it, it's uh, if you look at any firefighters doing their job, you know the fire makes uh, makes like holes, very uh, almost neat holes that the, the all, what you're left left with is charred, sort of like carbon surface. But uh, the, you're creating a pathway which is forbidden. And anyone who runs and is first to go and save someone by doing a melacha on Shabbat, this is praiseworthy. And as we said, anything that has that presents a danger to life, one did not ask permission from a betin. A person who has some kind of a, of a building fall on him. And we don't know under the, the debris if he's still alive or not. We still go and remove all the debris just to make sure, just to, 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 to see if Perhaps we can still save his life. What if we find him and the person is alive but barely alive and he's about to expire any moment? We still, we, we are allowed and we are supposed to do any melachot necessary to try to save him, even, even to make him live a few more moments. Even for a few more moments, we do Hailul Shabbat. However, if uh, you uncover this person's head under the debris, and from the head you see that the person is no longer alive, he's not breathing, um, and uh, this is back in the day when that was an, a very clear sign that someone would not uh, is not is no longer alive. Maybe today that's different. Uh, you you leave him there. You don't uncover the rest of the body. Because he's dead. If uh, you go to the debris and uh, let's say, God forbid, a multi story building collapsed, and then you check and all the people on the top levels died, uh, you still should go and dig through to get to the lower levels because it's possible that the lower levels are low levels people's people are still alive even though the upper level people died if you have a mixture in in the group of non-jews and jews as we said for non-jews we don't do hilul shabbat the exception doesn't extend to them it's not that we have anything against them it's just they're not within the system but if you have even one Jew among a thousand non-Jews, and then you have then you have one of these cases, you still remove the debris from everyone because of the one Jew in there. If and now we come to the, the rules of Sefekot and Perishot. If one of that thousand and one leaves the group and goes to a different place, and it's on that one that the building collapsed, and you don't know if that one was the Jew or the one thousand non-Jews, there is only one chance in a thousand that it's the Jew. But 
uh, we still uh, think that it might be, there is a chance, and that's enough for Hilul Shabbat. However, given if, if you have a different case, you have a thousand and one people that are in one room, then a thousand of them or all of them, they start moving from room A to room B, and while they are moving, one of them, one of the thousand and one, leaves the group, and then that's when that person is caught under this uh, destruction. So this, in the rules of Sefekot, is different, because now we apply the rule of anyone, and if you have one coming out of the majority, we assume the presumption is that it belongs to the majority. However, if the minority is part of the setup, then that presumption is no longer true. We have a different presumption we apply, which is even the minority, when that's part of the setup, is considered as half of the group. So that was the first case. In here, we have a case of going from the majority. And therefore, we assume that that one person belongs to the majority, which is the thousand non-Jews. Therefore, if the majority of the group were Jews, then if in, in that case the majority were Jews and as they were moving from room A to room B, someone leaves and, and that's when the Mapolet falls, we do save that person because we assume he's from the majority. <coughs> Now, a different case also having to do with exceptions to the Shabbat, not life endangerment, but nevertheless, interesting case. So what happens if someone is in the desert, he gets disoriented and he loses count, he loses track of the days of the week. He doesn't know when is Shabbat. So from the moment that he understands he got disoriented, he should count six days and sanctify the seventh one. He should say Kiddush on that day. should treat, treat it like Shabbat also for purposes of Havdalah at the end. And we treat all seven days as sort of like a Safek Shabbat a potential Shabbat, because he really doesn't know when it's Shabbat. And the rule is, he's allowed to do anything that he needs to uh, obtain food for himself and, and all of his basic needs, but not more than that. So for all seven days, he refrains mostly from Melacha, other than what he needs for his basic needs, that's Kedeh Parnasato. What if he does remember, he does know what day he left in the journey, he just doesn't remember what day of the week that was, so we should assume that the day he left was not a Shabbat, and then every eighth day, from that day in which he left, that's uh, a day of hol, and he can do any melacha he wants on that day. <clears throat> now, a couple of rules about war and uh, and sort of uh, military campaigns or, or security. I'd say I'd call this halachot security and Shabbat. Goyim shesaru al ayarot Israel imbau al iskem amon en mechalin alim ta Shabbat v'nosim ma'im milchama. Uh, goyim that come and attack or threaten any Jewish town, if they are coming in order to steal possessions, physical possessions, money, then that's not enough for us to want to defend against them through Hilul Shabbat or to fight them on Shabbat. However, if this is a, a city that is closed If this is a city that is 
that is close to the Sefar, um, in so we I think we've come across an example like this in Chutzpah I can't remember where, but it doesn't matter. Anyways, uh, we have a special status for cities that are border cities. So I, I guess in modern day Israel, Otef Aza, the 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 Yishuvim, the areas that are nearby our enemy Hamas in Aza, those have been an example of Aida Samuchala Sefar, uh, cities that are close to the border. So cities that are close to the border, they they have a special status in in, in as much as they are protective to the rest of the nation, as it is true today with Otef Aza. Um, they are the first line of defense. So even if all the motivation of the Goim is to come and steal some possessions, we still treat it in a higher degree of, of seriousness, because if that city falls in the hands of the Goim, they steal some houses or whatever, that endangers the rest of the nation. Even if all they want is to steal some straw, we should go and, and defend ourselves and attack them with weapons. For that, and everywhere, regardless of where, where the city is, if they came for... Um, purposes other than material purposes. So for example, they want to kidnap someone, or they want to kill someone, or they want to conquer the city. Or or, or they set up Al-Humil Hamad, they actually set up a, a an orderly battalion against the city. In other words, they are going to kill anyone on their way. Or Shesarustam, or they just surround the city and we don't know what their intent is. We should go and attack them with weapons and do Hilu Shabbat for them. It's a mitzvah for every Jew that comes, that can come and join. To go out to war, Laset is a technical term, it means to go out to war and to help their siblings that are surrounded. To save them from these, from these people on Shabbat. And it's forbidden to wait and to hesitate and to try to make time until Mosai Shabbat. Uh, rather, they should go right away on Shabbat. And after they hopefully save uh, the, their, their brothers, it's permitted. This is a special exception. There is no, one, no one's life is in danger right now, but they are permitted to go back to their cities carrying their weapons on Shabbat, so that in the future they don't refrain from coming if they know they have to leave their sword or their M16 or whatever in the city they are going to, to help, they might think twice about going, we don't want that. So too, a vessel that is about to drown, to sink in the sea, or a city that's being flooded by a river. The same mitzvah applies to go and save these people through any means possible. And even a single individual who is being pursued by Goim or by any Jew who is trying to uh, kill him, <coughs> to save this person, even through the doing of several melachot, even to prepare a weapon, to fashion a weapon on Shabbat to save this person is permissible. And we should also do tefillah on Shabbat. Now you should know, and we'll see it later, unlike what is done today in virtually all Batek and that I know, it's forbidden, Hachamim forbade, to use or on Shabbat to engage in any kind of supplication. We should not have on Shabbat Mishaberach for poor people. We should not have on Shabbat Mishaberach for um, needs of any kind. Uh, but this is an exception to that as well. And if someone is in danger, someone is being persecuted, or a city is being surrounded by Goim, or a ship is 
sinking in the ocean or a town is being flooded by a river, all of those cases are enough for us to be allowed to say tefillah for them on Shabbat. However, however, for dever, dever is more of like a natural, naturally occurring um, disaster. It's uh, some kind of a pest, of a plague. For that, we don't do tefillah on Shabbat. Now, the Jewish army is on the offensive, not on the defensive, the Israeli offensive forces. So they are allowed to begin a campaign, an offensive campaign, three days before Shabbat. And even if this campaign lasts more than three days, you can continue and continue waging war even on Shabbat until the objective is achieved. Even though this was a, a a war, a battle that wasn't necessary for for the immediate safety of Am Israel. learn from the pasuk which means um, that the Torah says you, you will besiege a city, and you will. Um, there is a few rules that apply there, but the setup of that pasuk is. As you besiege the city until it surrenders, so, which Chachamim take to mean that you're allowed to besiege a city and to battle against the city even on Shabbat, so long as the objective of them surrendering hasn't been achieved yet. Then, obviously, we don't even have to mention that this should be the case also in mandatory battles, battles that are for our immediate survival. And Yoshua bin Nun conquered the city of Yericho during Shabbat, the seventh day of that campaign, was on Shabbat, and this was obviously permissible at that time. Tomorrow, Be'ezat Hashem, we'll continue with chapter 3.